pieces on a chessboard. The monarch and his administrators move their pieces. Family is important. They can make or break the game. Pawns are also important. You can't be afraid to lose a piece, for if you refuse to sacrifice the pawn, you might lose, and the stakes are high. For when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. The game isn't chess, it's a Game of Thrones. Our next installment of Lies Speaking Truth is a sweeping epic fantasy, George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. The first volume in the series is what we're reviewing today, uh, entitled A Game of Thrones. Welcome to Lies Speaking Truth. I'm Roy Askins, and with me, as always, is Chris Gillespie. How are you doing, Chris? I'm here. Once again, today we're reviewing A Game of Thrones by George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, this is part of his Song of Ice and Fire series. It's recently been made into an HBO series. Uh, that's actually, is it somewhat popular? Several people have mentioned it. Yes, uh, it's, quite, it's quite popular, especially among the girls. Which is, that's not typical for a fantasy television program, so. It's also, uh, from what I understand, from what I've read online, popular with the uh, nerdy fantasy guys, too. Because they feel like they finally have an adult fantasy movie that they can watch. They're not relegated to Lord of the Rings. Chris, how do you uh, get a hold of us? Uh, You can get us, uh, get in touch with us two ways. Either talkback at liespeakingtruth.org. Uh, or go on to our website and give us feedback in the contact link there on liespeakingtruth.org, the website. Uh, we also have a Facebook site, facebook.com slash truth, all one word. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do this in a couple of ways. Uh, first, we ask that you purchase your books if you're reading along with us uh, through the links we have in the show notes. Uh, we get a little bit of cash back for those, a few pennies here and there. Uh, also, consider purchasing a book review uh, book for us to review. Uh, if you look, we have a list of uh, books we're going to review on the, on the, the schedule on our website. Uh, and if you purchase it for us, we'll move it up the list and get to reviewing it a little bit quicker. One other note with that, you can use the uh, Amazon uh, store widget that's on the site and pretty much purchase anything on Amazon, and it also will contribute to covering our costs for the website and whatnot. Yes, so please do use those links. Uh, I also want to go back through just a quick review of our guidelines. If you've just started to follow us here recently, uh, we have a couple of guidelines we kind of follow as we're going through and reviewing these books. First off, we're not here to read Christian themes into a book. Uh, we're not here to figure out uh, how Christ fits into every book or you know uh, that sort of a thing. We're not here to, to, to cram the book into a Christian worldview, but rather we do it the other way. We read it in light of its own worldview and try to uh, pull out with the worldview of, of the author and the and the, the book itself, and analyze it in light of Christianity, but not necessarily cramming Christian themes into a non-Christian book. And for that, of course, we use James W. Sires. Uh, the Universe Next Door is kind of our lens through which we, we look at the book uh, in terms of worldview. We also read the book as art and kind of look how it uh, fulfills the task and vocation of art, you might say. And for that, we use as our lens Gene Edward Veith's uh, reading Between the Lines, an excellent book. Uh, the the uh, link should be in the show notes, so do take a look at those. Uh, and once again, we also discuss how to talk about this book with youngsters if the book happens to be appropriate. Uh, finally, we should also note that there will be, not finally, secondly, we should note there will be spoilers in the podcast. If you haven't read the book, at least pause the, pause the podcast, read it, and then come back. Uh, and then finally, we should note that this book is uh, adulterated. While we will not uh, read the explicit portions of this text on the podcast, we will be discussing them. So if you have young children, uh, please listen to the podcast yourself before sharing it with them. Yes, homeschooler alert. 
<laughs> There's a shout out to our our uh, or not our to the God Whisper crew. Yes, our friends at God Whispers. There are two main kind of strands that are going through the book. One uh, that's following the main uh, the main land, the seven kingdoms, and the one that's uh, that's following the story of a disinherited, you might say princess who's trying to regain her realm. So the, the first strand uh, talks about the political intrigues of this land of the seven kingdoms. And the story begins when King Robert enlists Ned Stark to be his hand, the hand of the king, the agent of the king, largely responsible for running the kingdom. Uh, king Robert does not rule so well. He's a drunken partier who likes a good brawl every now and then. Uh, at the same time, furthermore, his wife and her family, Cersei Lannister, uh, aspire uh, to gain in power. So she regularly undermines the king. Um, even though Ned was hesitant to take the role of the king's hand, he does so in order to investigate the death of the previous hand of the king, uh, his wife's brother-in-law. It was a rather uh, auspicious death. Uh, Ned does eventually discover why the previous hand died, because of a dark, hidden secret of the Lannisters. Uh, In trying to bring the story to to King Robert, Ned never gets a chance. The King Robert dies from a hunting accident, uh, and Ned finds himself in prison. The kingdom is thrown into chaos as the different families of the kingdom, Ned's family and the Lannisters, uh, march to war against each other. Uh, Starks against Lannisters and their supporters and whatnot. The family of King Robert also eventually ends up marching to war as well. Uh, these are huge, broad strokes in terms of the summary. The book is very long, uh, and it would be impossible to do any sort of quasi-detailed uh, summary. So, in terms of the other storyline, the other storyline is that of Daenerys. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, Daenerys. Daenerys? Yeah. She is the daughter of King Rhaegar, uh, the king that was deposed by Robert. Uh, she and her brother Viserys have been hiding in another realm of the world from King Robert's assassins. Uh, Viserys marries Daenerys to a warlike warlike nomadic people known as the Dothraki in the hope of getting that people to go to war against King Robert and uh, and give him the Seven Kingdoms back uh, to regain his throne. However, Viserys gets the short end of the stick and gets killed by uh, Daenerys's husband, Khal Drogo, uh, Daenerys trusted the wrong person with Khal Drogo's health, and he dies as well, and the book eventually closes with uh, the really rather odd scene <laughs> of Daenerys uh, nursing three young dragons. And of course, the story back there is behind that is a King Rhaegar and the line that he descended from were known as the Dragon Kings, and, uh, and she becomes uh, the, the heir of that, that title. Do we want to discuss the others? I mean, the, the, really, the others, even Daenerys, really seem to be a theme that's going to come up in the, later in the series. I'm in about a third of the way into the uh, second book, and uh, it's the primary story that's going on is what's happening in the north, north of the wall. Yeah. So uh, th- th- there's th- there's a wall in northern in the northern part of the kingdom that protects uh, the seven kingdoms from uh, these monsters on the other side of the wall. Um, they're mentioned. One of the major characters, Jon Snow, uh, is up there, and and various events are happening up there. But these these really come to fruition in the second novel, so we're not going to spend too much time on them here. So uh, usually we begin with a discussion of uh, the book as art. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what do you think? Does the story succeed as a story? Like, uh, is it uh, is it an engaging story? Yes, I I think it is an engaging story, but I don't 
uh, know about succeed. That's an interesting word. <laughs> uh, I mean, what was the aim of the author in the book? Considering that it's it's apparent that the book is part of a long series, I I don't know what his roadmap is. So how does it succeed in terms of you know where he wanted to go with the story? I do think that you know we we get major character development uh, with Daenerys and with uh, well obviously with Eddard Stark. Right, Eddard Stark is also Ned. Yeah, Ned. The uh, we get the whole development of Eddard Stark, really, <laughs> uh, beginning to end. Yeah, but that's one of the themes in the book, which we could talk about later. In that, uh, many of the characters are developed more after they die than they are, you know, while they're living. You, I mean, you find <laughs> out more of their story and who they are and what you know what what kind of drove them, even though they're dead. Yeah, in fact, much of this book is spent uh, telling the backstory. Uh, behind the seven kingdoms and where the seven kingdoms come from. Right. But as a story, I was engaged. I was going to say, I think uh, in terms of does the story succeed is, uh, does he get you to buy the second volume, which it seems that he has. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I've been reading it. Uh, To be just completely honest, I didn't read the book before I started watching the uh, TV series. Well, and and I have to say, I I enjoyed the book and I will be looking for a used copy of the, uh, (laughs) the, the next book in the series. But, uh, um, I, I certainly think it was an engaging story. Uh, maybe I should read, uh, in terms of my question of does it succeed uh, as a story, let me read again, and we've read this before, once again from Gene Edward Vies, reading between the lines. Mortimer Adler, writing about beauty, distinguishes between the enjoyable and the admirable. Uh, Vieth writes, The enjoyable is subjective, what one person enjoys, another might not, and there are many reasons why someone may find pleasure in a given experience. The admirable, on the other hand, refers to objective qualities, to what Adler describes as an intrinsic excellence or perfection appropriate to that kind of thing, end quote. So, in this, in this sense, is the story enjoyable? Did you subjectively enjoy the reading experience? And I think so. I think he did a good job of creating a believable uh, story, of a story that uh, kept me enthralled. It, it uh, you know, I, I could read it without constantly laughing at how poorly the characters were developed, like I did in the last book we reviewed. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, and his character development was, was ten times better than uh, Dean Koontz's. Uh, uh, not that that's qualitative or anything, but... Um, so I thought uh, I thought the book did enjoy or uh, succeed as an engaging story. Uh, also had to do with the concern that I had for the characters. I mean, I was actually interested in hearing more of their story and and finding out um, I don't know where where it was going to take them. They seem yes. like the kind of people that you might actually know. Uh, <laughs> we, we had a little bit that, of that with the last book. There were a couple of characters that that struck us as being you know pretty realistic. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I definitely enjoy the characters much more. They seemed much more believable, which is really ironic because it's set in a in a context so different from my own. Uh, but see, that's the part of good storytelling is being able to take uh, the the realities of life and set them in a context that's so different from what your readers are, and still have your readers believe or at least feel as though uh, the story could have actually uh, the the characters were. Um, consistent with uh, with the story and with the world. Whatever art you're talking about, there's always going to be uh points of connection, right? Uh things that things that resonate that you that you've either experienced or you know or um uh, it seems similar to something you might experience here. While there are dragons, having, you know, a young 
woman nursing them, that's a connection. I mean, we can kind of sympathize with that. I've actually seen tandem nursing, you know, where you're nursing more than one thing at once. So uh, usually person, but anyway. <laughs> I just couldn't get past the idea of how painful it might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's in book two. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, so the, the second uh, is, is the book admirable. Mm-hmm. Um, that is to say, uh, does it have an intrinsic excellence or perfection appropriate to that kind of thing? The thing being the idea of the story, is there a certain level of excellence? And, and here we might talk about uh, the morality of a book. Is the, is the book morally uplifting? You know, I think in, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. That depends on which character you're speaking of. I don't necessarily think it's uh, characters per se, but the way different elements are portrayed. Uh, you know, some of the more adult themes in the story are portrayed in such a way as not to be morally repugnant, even though they should be. Uh, whereas he certainly upholds honor and, and, and virtue uh, as that which is appropriate. When he's talking about some of the activities with Daenerys and her and Caldrogo. Uh, the that is portrayed in a way that is made to be appropriate for this society. This is the way the society acts. So, you know, murdering each other while engaging in in sexual activities with women is certainly fine uh, because that's what this culture does. Uh, as opposed to a culture which is more honor bound. For here, here, let me real quick. I want to read this other quote from Veith. Uh, also from the reading between the lines, a well-written book or well-made film may deal with sex or violence, but almost never in a prurient way. Serious literary art tends to be honest. As such, it confronts realities, the search for love, the ugliness of evil, the futility of life without God, the mysterious splendors of ordinary life. That Christians can recognize as part of the human condition in what God has ordained in the created order. So it's not necessarily that it's wrong to include violence, but what is the author's view toward that violence? And that'll inform the morality uh, of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know that uh, what his intent is as far as marriage relationships. You know, what, what's, what, what is the ideal morality there? You have very little monogamy what do you want to say? Fidelity in marriage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that part of that is, you know, a society built on marriage uh, for political gain. Even Ned Stark is married for political reason and, and, you know, came uh, to yeah. love her, but not, not right. up front. And that, of course, that's the reason why he has a bastard child in part. But see, in terms of the, the, the bastard child, even he feels guilt over that. He was, you know, it's something he was not proud of. It was something, uh, so, so even, you know, th- this, is, this is an example of Martin actually portraying this in a, in a positive way. Even though there was a sin involved, he was repentant for it. Uh, he recognized that even though he hadn't uh, really loved his wife the way he should have, uh, that was no excuse for him to go out and have all the illicit affairs that King Robert had. Right. But you know, once again, for for Martin's in Martin's story, that's culturally conditioned. This is cultural relativism because in in the Dothraki among the Dothraki, it doesn't really matter having taking multiple wives or you know it was it was the right of the warriors when they conquered a city to uh, have their way with the women uh, because that was their 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 uh, their reward, and so and that was perfectly appropriate because that's what that culture did. You know, and he he doesn't really, at least in this book, critique that at all. 
where you do have the cultural clash happening between Daenerys and and the Dothraki, you know, and does she maintain her identity, you know, as a um, as a uh, Valerian? That's right. Now uh, those are the dragon people, and or does she become a Dothraki and adapt uh, adopt their culture and their language and their and their their rituals, you know, and that's her struggle in in book one. Um, but specifically in regards to the to those, like you say, the the adult themes and the more you know violent sexual stuff with the Dothraki, you know, uh, the culture of war that they have, uh, she does react to that. But I maybe it's in book two. I think maybe the beginning of the uh, her reaction to it ends. Maybe it's toward the the end of this book um, that where she really begins to embrace her Valerian roots. But you know. Uh, even then, the the Valerian people, from what I understand, weren't the most uh, peace loving people either. What he's setting up there is he's setting up uh, thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis of the two cultures. She's going to be the leader of these people. She's got three dragons. I mean, that's pretty clear. Um, but they're not going to be the same. You know, they're they're going to go from being yeah. nomadic uh, into maybe a civilization or something like that. But you know, something that would homogenize with, with her past as well. Plus, it's a woman leading the people, which is foreign to them. <laughs> right. She does, uh, there is, uh, toward the end of this book, right before Caldrogo dies, she does prevent several of his uh, warriors from uh, raping some of the women that uh, were in the town. And it causes a problem. <laughs> but uh, anyways, I, there there are other aspects of the book that were morally uplifting. He certainly, um, you know, he, uh, uh, Eddard Stark or Ned Stark, the hand of the king, uh, certainly did not uh, approve of many of the activities of King Robert, and he really is the 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 character I think that we're meant to look up most toward as the ideal uh, man in this book. He he, uh, spoiler alert alert again, but he ends up dying towards the end of the book, and he dies uh, being entirely deceived. <laughs> right, uh, you know. He he was searching for the truth and he found it and that's what led to his death, and uh, and he was a very honorable uh, man. He he uh, you know worked for the, the good of the realm as well as the the good of his family. Uh, it is ironic though that he does uh, eventually end up um, dying for a lie. Like he he uh, he is for well he, he's given the option either confess that you are a traitor to the king or we're going to kill your family and he chooses his family uh, and so. Uh, he dies while telling a lie, uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, for the most part, is acting for the good of his family. Right. Yeah. the 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 most noble characters uh, seem have seem to have the uh, <laughs> highest likelihood of dying. Uh, well, not necessarily, because you also have uh, uh, Viserys. He didn't do so well in the end. <laughs> and I really uh, liked his crown. His crown that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that was a fitting way for him to die, and. Uh, you know, it was a moment of, of internal cheering. <laughs> Finally happy. I mean, talk about annoying. An annoying character, it's great when they die off. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, that, that's a common thing that we'll get to, I suppose, later, is the amount, the number of characters that he kills off. I was mm-hmm. kind of afraid there weren't going to be any characters for the next uh, novel. But uh, In regards to book as art, admirable characters, I, I think his writing was pretty admirable, um, in a sense that he, it was done... It was done well. Like you said, it didn't make you uh, laugh at the quality of writing. You were, uh, and sometimes there's neat words that would come out that maybe weren't part of your vocabulary. 
you know, which that that keeps your attention and. and uh, Does it stand up to uh, what you might say is the standard of, of fantasy uh, art? You know, uh, not that we're not here to compare it uh, to necessarily Lord of the Rings, but when you think of a, a work of fantasy, does it does it stand up to the test? And I think, yeah, I, I think you could certainly uh, see that this is a, a solid work of, of fantasy. The the, uh, the online critiques of that, well, those in print too, uh, are split. Uh, really? Yeah, it's very polarized. If you read the reviews. Uh, which I haven't, but I only read the summaries. But they're they're polarized. Some say that the uh, analogy to you know the style of Lord of the Rings, that that type of fantasy literature, or farther back, you know what 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 Tolkien draws on with um, uh, I don't know the classic uh, Anglo-Saxon you know myths. Uh, what we don't have in this book that we do have in Tolkien is uh, you know a narrative drive. You know, there's there's an obvious aim. I mentioned that and how well does the story succeed. I mean, it's obvious that he was aiming towards uh, Daenerys, you know, becoming, you know, the mother of these dragons, being the dragon princess or whatever you yeah. want to call her. It, you know, it's obvious he wanted, Ed, he was going to bring Eddard to an end. Uh, and that was going to be a, this huge tragedy uh, to nearly conclude the book. Who else did he need to really bring to the fore? Uh, John Snow. Yeah, John Snow. He's who's going to you know serve as a major figure in, uh, in the in the next book too. And Rob Stark, I I would imagine too, uh, to take Eddard's place. So you've got you know this drive towards that, but you don't have you know the the kind of these key point hall. I don't know what you want to call them. You know, road marks as you're going through that are kind of dramatic to get you there. Yeah, uh, yeah. But 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 then it's a the type of literature, what he's trying to do here is the, the story is really secondary. It's it's more mm. uh, kind of you know dwelling in the lives of these people. I, I can't help but think yeah. of it as you know adult male soap opera. <laughs> you know, a, so, a, so, I, I, a soap opera was, for nerds. We'll just say that. Way. <laughs> I was going to suggest we just started reading uh, the Thornbirds, and uh, and that's another story that that really dwells on the characters and the life of the characters, and and the plot itself isn't so important as much as it is the inter- interrelations of the characters, uh, like a soap opera. Yeah, right. And I'm, sh- I mean, the the point is is that we can't even really see at this at the, by the end of this book, you know, what the future is going to hold. Right. I mean, it's not like. Okay, there's Sauron, and he's, you know, we're going to have to defeat him uh, by the end of these three books, you know. So you kind of have, but you don't know how that's going to happen, but you kind of know that's what the point is, even by the end of the first book. You know, there is this, this, there is the evil, and that's what's going to have to be, and the ring's going to have to be destroyed. And so that's going to drive the narrative, you know, all the way through to the end. Whereas here, I I don't know that we really have any idea. I mean, is it going to be the dragons? Is it going to be... You know the Starks. Is it going to be, um, you know, the Lannisters, or is it going to be somebody else that we don't even know yet in one of these other kingdoms? To get back to the question of uh, how it relates to fantasy, uh, there's a book that I have have called A Writer's Guide to Fantasy Literature, and it proposes five uh, different uh, subgenres of fantasy. So you have high fantasy, adventure, fa- advent- adventure fantasy, fairy tale fiction. Magic realism and dark fantasy are kind of the five realms that they propose. And I think when I say it relates to Tolkien, uh, they're both high fantasy. 
there there's less uh but at the same time there is a distinct difference between uh Martin and Tolkien. In fact, if the reviews had said, "Oh, it's the, he's the new Tolkien," I probably wouldn't have wanted to read the book because mm-hmm. then that would just be an imitation of Tolkien. And he's very different than Tolkien. He's very different in writing style, he's very different in in the way he presents the story. Uh Tolkien was in many ways trying to write a legend. Uh and George R R Martin is not trying to do that at all. He's trying to tell uh, the story of these characters, like you've pointed out with the uh, character driven story well that i mean that's the uh, the difference in the quality of the the author and yeah you're right he he probably knows he can't be tolkien he's going to do what he what he can do right uh, I mean Tolkien having the knowledge of ancient languages and mm-hmm. of classic myth he's that's that's the style that he's going to write in whereas right whereas Martin seems to be more interested uh, like i said in in writing a a story that's very much about us. Not to say Tolkien isn't. Um, but but Tolkien's characters really aren't about us. I mean, I mean, there's some reflection, you know, of, of Frodo and his struggle with the ring conquering him and this sort of thing. But Tolkien's characters really aren't about us. I mean, they're too they're too perfect in many ways. You know? Yeah. Right. Because they're myth. Yeah. Yeah. This. I so, don't. I think you're right. This doesn't aim to be myth. This aims to hmm. just be history. No. What if Tolkien's, uh, I mean, Tolkien's real work was not the Lord of the Rings, but the Silmarillion. And the purpose of that was to create a mythology for England. I mean, that's what he said when writing it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's not at all what Martin is trying to do. Martin's trying to tell a good story uh, about uh, people and, and how they, these interactions between these different personalities and these characters that he comes up with. And I, and I think he does it in a very delightful uh, way. Mm-hmm. Good. So some themes that we want to touch on. Uh, first, I wanted to, uh, th- th- we're going to get to listener feedback later on, but we heard from one of our listeners, Angela, and she proposed a way of looking at stories where you ask these two questions. Uh, first, what's worth living for? And secondly, what's worth dying for? We'll get to the rest of her feedback later on in the podcast. But uh, So we're going to ask those two questions. In this work by George R. R. Martin, uh, what's worth living for and what's worth dying for? So, in in terms of the story itself, uh, what's worth living for? As you look at Rob Stark as he sits up in Winterfell, or you look at uh, at uh, Ned Stark as he's acting as the hand of the king and trying to do and to run the kingdom uh, that uh, in place of King Robert because he's too busy uh, going out winching and uh, hunting and partying. Uh, what's worth living for? For uh, for Ned Stark, I think you'd have to say family. I mean, really, Absolutely. why does why does he go down there? He goes down there to 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 study the mystery, or not the mystery, to figure out why uh, the previous hand died. Okay, and the previous hand of the king was the brother in law of uh, Ned Stark's wife. Uh, he also goes down there because if he doesn't, uh, King Robert's likely to blow up and and uh, and go to war with him and his family up in Winterfell. You know, it's it's uh, he he goes down there to protect uh, his family and to protect the interests of his family. He goes down there because he has no other choice mm-hmm. uh, because it could put his family in danger. Yeah, I think if you had to if you had to say it this way, I'm thinking about the various characters in the book. Uh, what's worth living for is uh, you said family, so those who are living. Uh, but it's not just those who are living; it's those right. uh, who the memory of those who uh, yes. have died as well. So you protect yeah. the memory, uh, and that that's connected then to your home. 
So one of the great features of Winterfell, in my opinion, uh, which I don't th- think we really find in the other uh, kingdoms, at least the ones we're introduced to here, uh, is that they have a, a strong connection to their history by having a crypt as part of the yes. as part of Winterfell. So so every king of Winterfell, or not king, or lord of Winterfell is buried, uh, along with um, pretty, pretty much the whole family, the Stark family is there. No, right. just the kings. Oh, no, you're right. It's his, only the kings that receive the statues. Right. With the exception but his sister of, was there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she, his sister and his brother, and they both received statues because he wanted them to have one. But that was a break from tradition. Yeah. Right. And and it's also the way they learn their history, right? Because there's the, the when Rob goes down there with the, the master of Winterfell, uh, the master has him go and, and tell the story of each of these characters as, as they go through the, the uh, crypt. Yeah, actually, I think it would be Meister, but that's okay. Well, I wasn't sure how to pronounce it, so I was going with the simplest. Uh, yeah, I use, speaking of pronunciation, uh, my pronunciations are based upon the HBO television series. Uh, <laughs> but I don't remember how they said Master Meister. I've held off watching the second season, even though it's been it's already started to be broadcast, because I want to finish the book first. So, Gotcha. Read it. I'm doing it the opposite way as I did uh, the first book here. So, so um, on the on the spirit on, on the topic of living for family, you could even say for the arch enemies of the Starks, the Lannisters. That's still an important uh, uh, thing too, right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> why why do they go to war? They go to war because Tyrion, uh, Tyrion, Tyrion, Tyrion uh, uh, gets arrested by uh, by Ned Stark's wife. What was her name again? Caitlin. 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 Yeah, Kate, Caitlin. That's right. And so, uh, even for the Lannisters, family is important. But uh, there seems to be what makes the Lannisters so evil is that uh, while they they do place a premium on family, they're also willing to uh, to uh, maybe do a, too yeah too high of a premium on family. Uh, oh, that that too. When yes. it comes to their genetic makeup, yes. <laughs> do you, do you want to go further with that one? What incest? Yeah, <laughs> we'll just say that. Yes. Um, so basically, what Chris is talking about is in the story, um, the reason the hand, the previous hand, died was because he discovered that the king's wife uh, did not had not actually given birth to the king's children, but rather had had incestuous relationships with her uh, brother. Yeah, and and they had been doing this for generations, uh, uh, having incestuous relationships to keep the bloodline pure. Mm. So, what's worth living for? Uh, that's a that theme comes up pretty strongly in um, in Robert, end of the King, uh, Baratheon. Uh, with with Robert Baratheon, I think you also uh, get a picture of what can happen when you uh, you know lose your beloved and. In a sense, he loses, um, you know, value in his life because uh, he he loved. This was, uh, you know, Ned's sister. What was her name? I forget now. It's not coming to me. Uh, but anyways, Ned's sister. Uh, you know, he loved her dearly, and it seemed to have been faithful to him and was or to her, and was you know the noble husband. Uh, but then, upon her death, you know, you know, all hell breaks loose in his life, or at least. Uh, all of his moral constraint seems to fall apart. So he becomes but, a, a drunkard. Um, he becomes... He has plenty of women. 
And children by those women. Winching? Is that the word you're looking for? No, sure, that one works. And, and he also loses his ability to rule the, the kingdom, really. And that he, you know, he's, it's not that he's naive to the Lannisters, but he, uh, I don't think he's quite as sharp. Yeah. But at the same time, even Ned uh, mentions how before she died, before Ned's sister died, King Robert was still a, uh, a wild, profligate young man. He, he always liked his women. Uh, and part of his concern with actually Robert marrying his sister was the fact that he was so uh, free with his love. Of course, that, that isn't uh, unique to Robert, but Ned has, the, at least on one occasion, had the same challenge. This is very true. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why he can't fault him. <laughs> right. You know, having uh, fallen into that uh, same situation himself. Think of uh, Daenerys after the death of Khal uh, Drogo. Um, right. You know, and, and the death of her um, son. Yeah. Really, she didn't care about the death of her brother. She came to realize what a deadbeat he was eventually. Right. Uh, but uh, but the um, after the death of Caldrogo and her son, basically it became revenge, you know. Uh, I, I'm sure this will pick up on this in the in the second series, but it really seems like she has set herself up to get revenge and win her crown back. You know, there's no family left for her. She's the last one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, but I know better. So, <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't think it's revenge. But it it does seem that uh, without those dragons, she would have nothing left to live for. But right. but with the dragons, she's you know, and and that's developed throughout the story. It's not just at the end. You know, the dragons. She heats them or whatever. They're they're slightly warm, or she heats them in the in the fire. So you're kind of leading up to that. And uh, she recognizes that she has this skill with fire that that her brother doesn't have, that mm-hmm. a dragon would have. Um, right. And so, you know, her um, she's going to live for these dragons would be the that's the impression that I have, at least at the end of the book. Yeah, another character we could talk about too is uh, Jon Snow mm-hmm. and his uh, what what does he live for? Obviously. Jon Snow is a, well. No, obviously, Jon Snow is the bastard of Ned Stark, and as as an illegitimate child, he has no rights to the throne or no rights to any inheritance of Ned Stark. And so, what what can he do? Well, Ned sends him up to the Wall, and this is, uh, I suppose, a little more of the story here. When you serve on the Wall, those who serve on the Wall are called the uh, Black Watch, Night's Watch. Night's Watch, not with a K, but night is in darkness, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and they protect they they. Uh, live on the wall, and they protect the people of the kingdom uh, by protecting the wall. They don't get involved in the affairs of the kingdom at all. Uh, They only uh, protect the wall, or guard the wall, and protect the people from the horrors on the other side of the wall. They have to take a vow uh, not to father any children, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to marry. Not to marry, yeah. Right, not to marry. And then uh, once they become a member of the Night's Watch, they can never leave. It's a Kind of like a monastic vow, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. Bind yourself to it forever, and and it actually comes down to a point where John Snow wants to go uh, fight for his family, and he has to choose between uh, the honor of being on the wall or the honor of of upholding his vow that he makes, uh, or going and fighting for his family. So the the choice is honor versus family, and if you have the hardcover edition that we have in the show links, you can turn to page 552 
And here Jon Snow is, is uh, listening to Maester Aemon uh, talk about the choices that Master Aemon has had to make in his own life. And he asks a question about Jon's father. The old man, Master Aemon, seemed to sense his doubts. Tell me, John, if the day should ever come when your lord father must needs choose between honor on the one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? John hesitated. He wanted to say that Lord Eddard would never dishonor himself, not even for love. Yet inside, a small, sly voice whispered, He fathered a bastard. Where was the honor in that? And your mother, what of his duty to her? He will not even say her name. He would do whatever was right, he said, ringingly to make up for his hesitation, no matter what. Then Lord Eddard is a man in ten thousand. Most of us are not so strong. What is honor compared to a woman's love? What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms? Or the memory of a brother's smile? Wind and words. Wind and words. We are only human, and the gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tragedy. He goes on to talk about how Master Eamon tells the story of how he had to choose several times. He was of the the family of uh, Daenerys, the of Valerian, mm-hmm. and uh, had to choose three times to remain on the wall rather than go to uh, defend and, and protect his family. Even though he could have done that when uh, King Robert was was uh, butchering them all, to put it mildly. And mm-hmm. so Jon Snow is left with this choice: does he continue to uphold his vow, or does he go protect his family? And in the end, he he uh, opts for honor. He doesn't go to defend his family. He he runs away for a brief time, but his right. brothers bring him back, and he uh, he he binds himself uh, permanently to the to the wall in the north. Right. And again, you know, Jon's driven by family not only to protect uh, the north, to protect Winterfell uh, by protecting them on the wall, uh, but also to go north and to find his uncle. Right. Right. Which Oh I, yeah. There is still some family call there, but Right. But he was uh, feeling definitely a stronger call to uh take revenge for his father's death. Uh and that was the struggle. Do I go take revenge for my father's death by uh fighting with my, my half brother Rob or do I continue to to fulfill my vow that I made to stay here on the wall? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh you know John really doesn't have value in that culture apart from what value he's given uh, mm-hmm. by Ned. You know, by by integrating him into the family, uh, he's accepted by everyone, um, but but his stepmother, so to speak. You know, he's not his birth mother, but by Caitlin, she doesn't accept him. Right. Um, but the brothers do, and sisters do. As a matter of fact, they love him. Right. I mean, especially. Um, yeah. Uh, Arya, or how do you say it? Arya. Yeah, Arya. Especially Arya seems Aria. to be. Sure, yeah, yeah. Seems to be especially, uh, you know, they, they have a connection there. But Sansa, however, on, on, on the other hand, uh, won't even call him a brother. That's true. She might get over that in the end. <laughs> I don't know. I imagine so. But I imagine so. I, it's, things are not going to go well for her uh, with. Uh, Prince Joffrey. All right. So the next question we have on the docket is what's worth dying for? I don't know how the the questions are different necessarily. Well, maybe it is the same question, uh, but just two sides of the same coin. If if what's worth living for isn't the same as what's worth dying for, uh, then your priorities might be askew. Uh, For example, you know, if it's worth, you know, Robert, if it's worth living for, 
uh, all of his mistresses, are they really worth dying for? You know, is that worth dying yeah, for? Yeah. No, he's not going to defend himself uh, to the death so that he can keep, you know, whoring around with, that's the right word, uh, whoring around with these mistresses. Yeah. So, so I mean, they are different questions. Uh, you're, going to, you're going to die for your home, so that, that is something that you would do in either case. Uh, it's worth living for so that you can go home. Uh, it's right. worth dying for to defend that home so that your family can continue to uh, enjoy it and be protected. Yeah, and that's you know that's uh, the reason that uh, Ned Stark finally died was for his family. You know, uh, the reason he got his head lopped off was in trying to def- to uh, to uh, protect his daughters from the Lannisters. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what else is worth dying for? Well, there there is this theme of honor. Have we talked much about honor? Even what is honor anyway? Honor is, you know, we always talk about our honor and what is what is our our honor. It's a virtue, I suppose, of of uh, remaining true to your word. Um, it's the virtue of of being an upright person. Uh, but the the question I have is: Is disembodied honor worth living for or di- dying for? You know, is just this vague notion uh, of a virtue that kind of floats out there that we participate in some degree in by being good people? Is that worth living for or dying for? And uh, you know, I just don't know. I think there's something, at least in our world, that lies behind honor. Uh, at least as as was seen in the, in our own medieval era here in here in the real world or mm-hmm. um, and and the idea behind that is that there's a god that gives honor that gives honor a purpose and, and direction and focus mm-hmm. uh, and 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 here you know as Christians we can say uh, yeah honor is worth living and dying for because honor is is um, is incorporated into the to the mystery of Christ but in terms of just honor as a, as a, you know apart from God I don't know that that's worth dying for. I mean, right. this is this is like Aristotle's, uh, you know, ethics. He he upholds these these virtues, but without a God to give them substance, then what's what's it worth? Right. I don't know. Well, the the point is, is that honor is a relative value. It, it, it's something that that isn't uh, always very precisely defined. I mean, right. by by honor, well, well, not anymore. Not not these days. I mean, I think Aristotle had a pretty precise definition of it, but. Um, I don't know that we would have such a precise definition today. Well, maybe, maybe not. I, I, I do think it's, well, it's conceptual in any case. So it's, it's not to say that uh, honor means that you always defend your family. I mean, there, that, that might be the case, but what, what if your family's in the wrong? Right. The, more, the more, you know, honorable thing to do is to defend the truth. Now, what's the truth, of course? Um, that may not be as relative. <laughs> well, or, or take take the example of, of John Snow. So mm-hmm. John took a vow uh, before the gods of whatever gods that he worships uh, to stay on the wall and defend the wall. And he's torn between uh, defending his family and defend and and upholding his honor by staying on the wall. Right. His commitment. Really. His commitment. Yeah. 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 And is there anything? behind that commitment really giving it value okay and and this kind of brings us to the religious themes of of the gods that that they worship and and it just seems to me that there's nothing uh more morally right uh by upholding his his promise on the wall 
uh, that that's in some way more morally sound than than going and protecting his family and, and defending his family, fighting mm-hmm. for his family. Mm-hmm. And, and, and part of that's because, once again, when we talk about their gods and the way that George R. R. Martin presents the gods in the book is that they really don't have uh, – largely it's a materialistic book. Yeah, they pray to the gods, but these gods have no real uh, influence or activity in their lives. Uh, these gods don't actually interact with – the the characters of the story right uh right. what's what's important are you know steel blood and bone you know <clears throat> the real things of, of this world and and the gods don't really in any way influence the affairs of, of the world and so uh, if the gods have no real influence then what value is there in making an a vow to them uh that uh, that you're going to do this thing or the this that or the other thing right yeah completely um the gods only serve a purpose for the individual, or or perhaps for the community, um, but not really uh, actual any effect. Of course, this the the gods will come back in the next in the next book, uh, and they it Do does be- it does serve as a stronger role with another one of the cultures where the there, there's a conflict between old gods new gods that's much stronger than than now. In but the, but is book. the conflict merely a cultural, or I mean, do you actually see the gods being coming involved in the affairs? Mm. I mean, cause, not cause the actual it, gods, but their servants. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is the thing: like George R. R. Martin presents it as many would view uh, a more primitive religion in the sense that you know they just kind of blindly worship without any sort of uh, you know uh, reason behind it. It's just you know we worship these gods, and this is what we do, and you know, we believe they do things, whether or not they do or not, is is not important. Yeah, a lot of the, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, isn't it yeah. great that we have these gods? But, you know, it's just pious superstition. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and once again, this is not to say that I'm I'm a dissing honor. You know, once again, as a Christian, I believe honor is a very important virtue. Uh, and it's an important virtue by because it participates or it is it is the outgrowing of Christian life that I desire to uphold my promises to let my yeses be yes and my noes be noes, uh, because Christ lives and dwells and moves in me. But then He becomes the the motivating power for any sort of virtue or ethic, rather than myself. You know, in 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 Game of Thrones, uh, it is the individual who who makes or breaks his own destiny. He is the one who determines whether or not he's noble or vile. You know, um, uh, Tyrion. Tyrion mm-hmm. yeah. is vile and he's proud of it. He makes it himself. You know, he is the one that makes himself vile, whereas, you know, Ned Stark is the one that makes himself noble. He is right. the source of his own nobility. He's the source of his own virtue. And, uh, and you know, if I'm the source of my own honor, then then uh, what a pitiful honor that might be, <laughs> that is. <laughs> In- incidentally, uh, Tyrion is, um, you know, the fan favorite character, uh, partly because of how he's portrayed in the HBO series. Uh, which is accurate to the book um, and the, the character who played, and they, he won the uh, uh, Golden Globe and the Emmy for Best Supporting Actor. Well, and he was great in the book too. I mean, of all, I, he, I loved him in the book. Right. You, I mean, you were rooting for him, even though he was <laughs> somewhat amoral. <laughs> but because because he he seemed to be, uh, he wasn't naive to anything. Yeah. You know, he knew the reality of being. You know, low man on the totem pole. <laughs> um, <laughs> he would appreciate that. Uh, 
you know, but but not only, but he also knew, you know, how to manipulate people uh, through words or through uh, the use of his wealth or or whatever, or his standing in, in the society. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it was kind of a low standing. Well, and and he was a witty foil for the uh, overly uh, stiff or overly, you know, ritualistic uh, or not ritualistic, but. Um, well, stodgy anyway. Yeah, stodgy. That's a good word. He he was a foil for the stodgy culture, you know. You have this high fantasy, and then you have this character, a Tyrion, that kind of brings a, a wry smile to your lips every time you uh, you encounter him. Yeah, because maybe he's, the, he's, maybe he's the most contemporary to us. He's very materialistic. Uh, <laughs> well, he is. And he, yeah, and he, he is. You know, he's um, sensual. He's into the food and the wine and the women and, you know, which, which this is what's driving our culture now anyway. I mean, this is, you know, live for the moment. That seems to be Tyrion. He doesn't know what's going to come tomorrow, so he's just going to enjoy what, what he has. Right. Uh, but at least that's how he's portrayed now, although I, that will change. <laughs> yeah. You know, that part of his character remains the same, but he takes on another dimension um, later on. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm spoiling. I'm spoiling the second <laughs> book. Yeah, no, that's fine. No, no I, I think uh, I, I, th- I, well, getting back to the, well, this is off topic, but getting back to the characters, I think you did it once again a fantastic job with. You know, you see that with Ty- Tyrion. You know, this development of his character. You, he he appears at the very beginning to be a a flat character, just just kind of the the Joker. But as you're saying, he kind of develops throughout the book and then later on in the series as well. Mm-hmm. Did you want to uh, touch more on the religious themes? The basically, uh, I mentioned it briefly. The worldview that George R. R. Martin is writing in this book is a materialistic modern worldview. Even though they're they're gods, uh, they're they're uh, um, like Chris said, the nudge nudge wink, you know, sort of uh, superstitious uh, view of gods. You contrast this with other. Store, fantasy stories such as Tolkien, whose entire world was actually created through Iluvatar's music. He doesn't merely uh, create, but he continues to direct. Or C.S. Lewis, whose entire world was created through Aslan's singing. The, the gods are very active in, in directing this history. And this is certainly not uh, the case in George R. R. Martin's book. Uh, the, the gods have no, no real influence that he doesn't have the narrative drive that I was kind of looking for because he doesn't have this, this, uh, uh, you know, however you want to view him, a God figure or some kind of figure that's, that has an aim in mind that's manipulating these, these characters on the board. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a game and yet who's really playing the game? (laughs) You know, the characters are playing against each other, but uh, who's, who's moving these pieces around so that, so that it, they move towards a greater good or, or uh, you know, mm-hmm. an aim, or is it just, is it really just, you know, more chaotic? Mm-hmm. And I, I think for Martin, it, at least so far, it's, it's pretty much chaos. Yeah. You know, yeah. self-serving chaos. Who, who can get ahead? <laughs> and maybe yeah. that's why, maybe that's why it, it uh, feels so contemporary to us. <laughs> and that, that's, you know, that's our society. That's our, our worldview for a lot. Well, not maybe our personal, but, in our world is, you know, it's this big game to see who can get ahead, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be in business or in, in life or against, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or, or whatever, right. You know, who can build the bigger estate and, you know, have them the most cars in their garage and 
whatnot. The most slaves, the most ser- uh, servants, mm-hmm. most bastard children. Uh, we don't, we don't have that yet. <laughs> We're working on it. Yeah. What is driving these people? You know, we've talked about you know materialism. We've talked about family, um, but it it really. You know, it's it's very much just self gain. You know, the improvement of of your people. Uh, so there's kind of a racist theme going on too amongst these various kingdoms. Um, it's not even very humanistic. You know, <laughs> I no. mean, they're willing to slaughter large large uh, portions of people. I mean, even even uh, Rob Stark, who is supposed to be this great honorable man, is willing to go to war and slaughter the lives of so many. Uh, you know, just to to get revenge for his father's death. Okay, uh, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about. How do you, or are there ways that you can prepare the book uh, so as to prevent, uh, I'm thinking particularly in terms of your sons, uh, from falling into various temptations that come along with the adult yeah. themes of this story? Yeah. You know, I... I would have a real hard time having my son, you know, as one who had the run of the library at a young age, mm-hmm. uh, I would have a hard time letting my son read this book. We're not so offended by the violence. Um, and Christians seem to have a different approach to violence than most of our world when it comes to children. You know, I mean, we read them the passion account, uh, <laughs> which is quite violent and very visual. Um, maybe not as much as the movie version, but, you know, it's still... Right. It's pretty. It's pretty significant. It's not the kind of thing um, a secular person would probably read to their child, uh, thinking that they're going to protect the mind. Uh, but the the sexual theme certainly uh, you need to have in place. This is this is my opinion, at least the one that I've formulated so far. You need to have in its place, you know, a positive um, in your own life, a positive example, you know, so that. So that when you're tempted to sin, you have something good to go to. That's how I think that's how Paul works when it comes to sexual temptation. You know, if if you're you're tempted to sin, then you should marry. Right. Uh, so I mean, this is the kind of book where you know you might you might read things that were wrong sexually, but then if you have you know a wife, you can turn around and say, no, that's wrong, but here's the right, right, and and use it for the use it for the good that way. Uh, so that that means that who is this really appropriate for? Maybe not even someone you know who's struggling with with their uh, with their sexual desires. You know, or even a preteen or or teenager. And also, you know, there are those who can read these these uh, you know as you age and mature can read these stories and not have so much of a concern. Gina Bravith mentions how he's he's read so much that a lot of these things become formulaic and he starts to laugh about them because of how just silly the whole scene is, how unnecessary and silly it is. So part of it is knowing, uh, you know, as you talk to your children, knowing uh, uh, being intimately aware of as best as you're able, you know, as the house father. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what what the concerns your child has uh, or the sins of your child in, in, in some ways as much as you're able mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the one who is called to absolve that child to know, uh, you know, uh, is this something that uh, that they can handle? You know, is he able to turn away and say, I shouldn't be reading this? Right, exactly. Listener feedback. We got a, an email from Angela... She uh, wrote in response to our episode on 
um, Percy Jackson, well, not the Percy Jackson stories, but the Heroes of Olympus series. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to read her email real quick and uh, just talk briefly about what she said. She writes, first of all, perhaps you mentioned this, but I don't recall. It's very intriguing that the Greek and Roman demigods grew up to fight the battle for Western civilization against Gaia, Mother Earth. What are Rorden's personal beliefs? I'd like to know. And that's really an interesting insight that, uh, I'm sorry, this is my comments here again, uh, that the Greek and Roman gods uh, <laughs> fight for Western civilization against Mother Earth. Uh, you know, that you have these old gods fighting the new gods, you know, because what, what do we worship? We worship creation. We worship, you know, preservation of creation, you know, Mother Earth, this whole sort of uh, New Age movement. Uh, Angela continues, secondly, I've heard Dr. Stein say a number of times that when he taught at his high school in Colorado Springs, he had three questions for the students. He said that the ancient philosophers were seeking the answers to these questions. They are, what is life? What is death? And how can we secure the future? As Christians, of course, we have the answers to those questions. But the question is, how do we apply these to literature? After reading a book, ask the students, according to this narrative, what is worth dying for? What is worth living for? When I asked my students, separate, my kids separately, these questions about the Reardon books, they said friends for the first question, and the answer to the second is figure out what your strengths are and then use them to help others, or vocation. As the characters in Percy Jackson stories do not have intact families, I'd say the friends are the equivalent of families, so the answer to the first question may be that family is worth dying for. I've not done any deep character analysis on this idea, so I may be wrong, but perhaps some of the characters even represent certain virtues, truth, loyalty, courage. Finally, I think the reason these books are so compelling for kids, and my kids love them, is precisely because the characters wrestle with the questions of what is life and what is death. Kids are trying to figure out their purpose in life. They're looking for answers, even if they have to look to lies speaking truth. I thought that was a great tie-in she had there at the end. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Thank you for the for the plug. <laughs> yeah, no, there was a great feedback, Angela. Thank you for sending us uh, the email and and definitely some good thoughts on the person Jackson Percy Jackson stories. I, I have added uh, the first series to our list, uh, our schedule that will eventually hopefully pick pick those up. Yeah. We don't have any other feedback, so uh, if you would like to have something on the podcast, please send us an email. We'll read it aloud if we can. Uh, For next week, what are we doing, Chris? Not next week, next episode. What are we doing? For the next episode, we're going to do Robinson Crusoe, a classic. And it's bound to uh, yield us many listeners as uh, students have to read it for for their school. And they look on the internet for somebody who's talking about it. (laughs) Uh, Written by Daniel Defoe. Should be a a fantastic read. Looking forward to it. All righty. Until next time. This is Live Speaking Truth.